you are now tuned in to the Worldwide Underground, episode number nine. I'm your host and producer, Gabriel Teodros, and today my guest is Malkia Devich Cyril, an activist, writer, and public speaker on issues of digital rights, narrative power, black liberation, and collective grief. I first met Malkia around 15 years ago over at the Magnet Conference that was Media Action Grassroots Network. Malkia was representing an organization that they helped found called Media Justice. And I learned in this interview that Malkia is actually one of the people who helped coin the term Media Justice back in 2002. And they went on to declare that a significant goal of the Media Justice Movement is to fight for a future where we are all connected, represented, and free. You know, this entire podcast since the beginning has been about a war of stories that we are all engaged in, whether we acknowledge it or not. I believe this episode gets right to the heart of the matter. I want to thank Malkia for all of their brilliant insights, being so generous with their time. As this podcast episode releases, Ijoma and myself are still on tour. For Ijoma's new book, Be a Revolution, be sure to pick that up in your local independent bookshop. You can order it online. You can also go back to last week's episode and check out my conversation with Ijoma about that book. And check out all the previous episodes while you're at it, from Nikita Oliver to Kings to Marawi Garima to... Bilin Nahiwet, Derek Dizon to the first episode that had a whole collage of voices. It's been a good ride. Oh, Saul Williams is on one of them, you know. I want to thank everyone for being here. I want to thank everyone for supporting this podcast. It's a completely independent endeavor. The best way to support is to sign on to gabrielteodros.substack.com. Just put your email address in the box. And you can also support at whatever level feels right to you. Got no other sponsorship, no advertising here. It's just people and stories, you know? So with no further ado, let's get to today's episode with Malkia. Appreciate y'all so much. This is the Worldwide Underground. And today I am joined by my friend Malkia Devich Cyril. Thank you so much, Malkia, for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been this this conversation's been a long time coming. Um, I think I've I think I first reached out to you maybe in December. Um, and I wanted to talk to you specifically, um, because we're in an age of mass I mean, we've been in it, an age of mass misinformation. And when I think about um media justice and what that means you're one of the first people that i think of um so if it's all right with you i wanted to talk a little bit about um kind of how i first learned about media justice and then i would if you wouldn't mind i'd love to hear you know your history with it you know Mm -hmm. so for me um coming coming into of age uh in seattle in you know 1999 i was i was 18 years old um, and that was the WTO protests. Um, I talk about that time period a lot because it was so informative and mm. 
my my group, uh, 500 Years, we were a hip hop group that was in the middle of the protests, performing all year. I got a real like political education from the organizing that led up to that protest. And the concept of being your own media was really important um, because we knew that they weren't going to tell the stories of what we were doing in the streets um, in that time period. And also as an independent hip hop artist, um, this is also the era where like being your own record label um, and not relying on the music industry to get your music out was, was also like, very informative and has, you know, informed my whole walk ever since. So I've always had this idea that we have to be our own media. And the other thing that was important that happened in 99, I think that we were part of actually, we performed at the opening was the independent media center. We performed at the opening of the very first one in 1999 in Seattle at the WTO protest. And that's kind of where my like, you know, introduction to media justice comes from. Um, you being a Panther Cub, and uh, I first met you with our dear friend, uh, Rawa Habte, may she rest in peace, and Karen Toring at the Media Action Grassroots Network Conference in DC many, many years ago. And you, you're someone who's just always inspired me. He's always been on point. And I was hoping we could talk about, uh, yeah, your history with, with media justice. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Yeah. Yeah, so where where does where does it start for you? Yeah. Where does it start? You know, um, my mom was my mom's name was Janet Cyril. She was a founding member of the uh, New York chapter of the Black Panther Party. And she was also um an editor of the Panther paper, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh so I grew up within um an an, an analysis that um, the creation of ideas and uh, writing and journalism was all part of a political strategy for justice, you know? Mm-hmm. So this was something that, that I grew up, you know, that was very central to my upbringing. I learned how to read um, at, at this um, uh, bookstore in Harlem called Liberation Bookstore, sitting on the floor reading poems by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Um you know, I went to a liberation school as a, as a, as a top, you know, as a, as a small person, um, you know, everything about the way my mom raised my sister and I was all centered around, um, this idea that, um, culture, you know, was a strategy for black liberation. Mm -hmm. So I think that my relationship with the concept of media justice has been ongoing from birth mm-hmm. yeah and has been generational even you know my grandmother mm-hmm. was a teacher she was also a member of the anchorage symphony orchestra the only black woman in the anchorage symphony orchestra the first black woman to graduate from brooklyn college as a biochemist this is you know this idea science culture um ideas very fluent in my family as a as a strategy for black liberation Mm-hmm. And then as I grew, you know, I was a page at the library, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for the Human Rights Commissioner in New York when I was 16 to, uh, you know, to write speeches, you know. I was a poet, um, yes. a spoken word poet, you know. Um, everything about my life was just culture, culture as a strategy, culture as a weapon, culture as a liberatory mechanism, 
culture as a person, as a means and vehicle for personal transformation, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when it came time for, um, you know, as an organizer, and I was working as a community organizer, uh, working with homeless youth and homeless families, and we needed, we were trying to pass a, a, a measure in Oakland called mm -hmm. Measure B, you know, mm -hmm. and it was just a 1% tax, you know, trying to mm -hmm. get some transportation, some more equitable transportation, but we couldn't do it. You know, mm. we couldn't pass, even though it was widely uh, desired, you know, by the people. Right. But there was a, a, a narrative, you know, mm -hmm. that wasn't mm -hmm. um, that wasn't allowing it was, it was impacting the votes. And so we said, well, we're going to have to somehow figure out how we get some ed editorials, you know, in the in the paper. Right. And we didn't have at that time, nobody, no small nonprofit or small community organizer group had a communications person on staff. Nobody did that. What, what year was this? This was maybe, let's see, 19, well, let's, let's call it, yeah, 90, 99, maybe 2000, okay. you know? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, nobody had a, nobody had a, um, a, a communication staff, staff. Right. And right. so, you know, there I was an organizer, like, all right, well, let me start writing some editorials. Um, let me learn how to write editorials. Let me mm. learn how to teach editorial writing. You know, um, let me learn more about journalism. Let me learn more about strategic communication. So I just became unofficially the strategic communications director, if you will, at mm -hmm. that organization. Mm -hmm. And we won, you know, we won Measure B. Um, and we started to work with the young people around um, identifying problematic narratives, um, meeting with um, meeting with editorial boards. We just began to incorporate media and media activism as part of our strategy. So it was no big, big brainer when We Interrupt This Message came to me and said, you know what, we would like to start a program that lives at the intersection of strategic communications and media activism that specifically is trying to transform narrative, harmful narratives of young people of color in California. Can you help us do that? Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I don't know nothing about this, but mm -hmm. um, I'm down to try. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I felt like my whole life had prepared me for that intersection. Mm -hmm. And so that's mm -hmm. how I got started. We started the Youth Media Council. And okay. the Youth Media Council was actually a council of organizations, youth organizations throughout California that mm -hmm. were going to train and learn and meet with editorial boards, do media monitoring to challenge the, the harmful and criminalizing narratives about young people of color in California. We did that, nice. but it grew, right? We, yeah. you know, as we were doing that, we were realizing, hey, I could train you all day on, on effective narratives, but I began to see that it's the structure. It was the, the structures of media that were mm -hmm. disabling. They were, they were un, making it hard for us to move our message through, no matter how strategic our message right. was, no matter how sophisticated our message was. And so I started figuring out, oh, well, what is this FCC? What is this yes. thing, you know, about yes. uh, what is Clear Channel? Let me find mm -hmm. out. Well, mm -hmm. what are some other ways we could get some some news into the places that our young people are actually listening and, and paying attention? 
So we, right. we, we did a campaign called Unplugged Clear Channel. First it was it. local. Yeah, first it was local. I didn't know that. Yeah. And then it became national. Uh-huh. A national campaign to unplug Clear Channel. And wow. uh, we, all over the country, we, we, we looked at um, Clear Channel uh, news, uh, radio, radio outlets, mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. um, uh, challenged them on their licenses mm-hmm. um, uh, if, they weren't, if they weren't meeting the public interest. Uh-huh. And we uh-huh. were we were trying to get you know uh, black news in, yeah. you know, to be to be featured on these hip hop stations, but yeah. at the same time we were trying to re- remove the licenses of the mm-hmm. right wing stations. Mm-hmm. So we just did that, you know. That's amazing. Were there successes in that? Yeah, in yeah, yeah. We were able to uh, re- uh, remove the license of one right wing station, okay. um, and then we got. Um, you know, you, I don't know if you know, but here in the, in the Bay Area, there's mm-hmm. um, there's something that Clear Channel started, I think now it's national, called the Black News Network. Interesting. And that, that is um, a direct result of that time, you know? Wow. Okay. So, you know, I, I at the time, I thought the successes were great. Now, I yes. see that power always uh, reorganizes itself to reify right. itself. Right. So, um, so the, the 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 victories we had then were undermined uh, later, but they mm-hmm. were victories at the time, and yeah. um, and we moved. You know, we, we I started to see like, well, this is not a local issue; this is a national issue, mm-hmm. and so you know, I started the I started media justice, moved the the youth media council from a regional or statewide organization to become media justice, which was a national organization focused on structural change inside of the media and technolo- technological system. So that's mm-hmm. how we became, that's how media justice became, you know? Wow, yeah. And, um, and I'll say the last thing is that the, the term media justice, mm-hmm. we came to that um, in 2002, sitting with a group of brilliant, brilliant um, uh, media activists at the Highlander Center, Makani, uh, Tembo was one of those people, mm-hmm. um, and several other folks were there, and we um, and we were trying to think about how can we uh, shift this media reform movement that right. was so focused on uh, what was going on in, in Washington D.C., mm-hmm. so focused solely on policy. Um, mm-hmm. It was led by white men, you know, um, mm-hmm. really wasn't considering the interests of yeah. black people, of poor people, of young people, so on and so forth. And we said, let's let's model this after the environmental justice movement. You know, how mm. they moved from environmental reform to environmental justice. Young people and people of color came coming together to mm-hmm. forge a new analysis. So we did that. Mm-hmm. We coined the term media justice at that gathering. Wow. And out of that, a whole sector emerged. Wow. It- to be friends with you for like, I don't even know how long it's been, probably more than a decade. Mm-hmm. And to have used the term media justice for much longer than that. I never knew that you were part of like the group that coined the term. That's oh, absolutely. wild. Yes. That's wild. Uh, all right. There's so many, so many different directions we could go from here. <laughs> um, okay. One thing I want to contextualize for people Um who may not know just about the clear channel piece, because I, for a long time, would teach whole workshops about this at the middle school, high school and university level um, where people, I basically like would go into these workshops 
um, and just ask the students. I would just come in with questions and they wouldn't know me yet. This would be the first time I'm meeting them. Um, and just ask them like, what's their favorite music, right? Most of the time they'd be like hip hop. All right, cool. Right. So who, who are some of your favorite rappers, you know? And um, nine times out of 10, they would start listening, listing um, rappers from the 90s, even though we're t I'm doing this in the 2000s and the 2010s. Mm. And I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Like you, name, you named artists that are your favorite artists in this genre that you listen to that, you know, Pac and Biggie would come up a lot. Like some of them, like you're born after they passed away. So mm. what is it about, what is it about music from back then that's different than now? And like, they would just go through and tell you everything that's wrong with music on the radio. And mm. I'm like, okay. And I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. You know, and, I, and, and it was just questions. And then I would ask, what do you notice about the radio station? Like, do you ever listen to here in Seattle? We have a Cube 93. Every mm -hmm. city has mm -hmm. a radio station like a Cube 93. Like, that's what do you right. notice about the about this one radio station? I'm sure you've heard it just, you know, and they would tell you everything that's wrong with the radio station. They play the same five songs. And, and what are those songs about? And they're just about like money, power, violence and sex, you know, like, oh, that's interesting. Right. Have you ever heard of Clear Channel? <laughs> Silence. That's Have you ever right. heard of iHeartMedia? Uh, maybe, you know, because mm -hmm. Clear Channel got bought by iHeartMedia later, mm -hmm. later. And then I would break break down how like this one corporation before, was it 1997? Like that's when the when the Telecommunications Act passed. They, it was illegal for a corporation to own more than a set amount of radio stations in a market. But after that year, they took that limitation away and one corporation could own as many media outlets as it wants. And in some cities, they own all the radio stations and they definitely own every one of those Cube 93. So that's why you're hearing the same playlist over and over again. And then, that's right. we, and then we can have a deeper conversation. So what does that mean for the news? What does that mean for your information? What is, you know, and um, yes. yeah, so that's that's cool that you were, you were holding Clear Channel uh, accountable. Um, it's interesting now because having that conversation now is completely different with the internet and that being the place where people listen to music. And I feel like just so much has changed in the last 20 years. And even a lot of the language that we've used about media justice, I feel like has been co-opted by the right wing, to be frank. Like, you know, like Donald Trump is saying, don't trust the media, you know, and for all, it's all the wrong reasons. And yeah, I'm just wondering, like, what what are your thoughts with the language being co-opted by the right of like yeah. things that we used to say about, you know, the reasons we can't trust the media <laughs> because it's not telling it's not telling our story. It's not telling the full story is dehumanizing, it's dehumanizing whole you know, groups of people like we're seeing currently with Israel, Palestine. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, you have the right wing saying you can't trust the media for all these other, like, like, what are, what are your thoughts? I mean, so first of all, we have this telecommunications act, right. That you mentioned yeah. signed in 1996 by a democratic president, Bill Clinton. That's right. Um, we know that, that, you know, that law was essentially bought and paid for by corporate media lobbies. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we know that that was true at the time. And this relationship between corporate power and right-wing power is is 100% intertwined. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the the right wing and their their culture wars, you know, they stem mm -hmm. from that same period of time. Mm 
you know the mm. late 80s the, the late 80s through through the 90s was a, a period of intensifying um culture what what we've called culture wars on the right where mm. you know the right wing attacked uh policies like affirmative action um attacked uh you know ethnic studies bilingual education um you know here's one thing that's true while the media reform movement um limited its understanding of media and technology to like journalism you know mm-hmm. um and um technology to some degree the internet yeah. um, and and its policy right the right has always understood that um cultural strategy is much broader mm. and so they have focused in large measure on education you know both mm-hmm. the universities and um and uh you know um you know lower lower level education yeah k through through high school education and um and this attempt this 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 work that they've done you know to uh, remove ethnic studies to you know that's what it was then to challenge ethnic studies to um transform the policies that would allow that that were were intended to bypass decades centuries of discrimination and exclusion um their whole premise is essentially right racism doesn't exist no longer exists mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. it ever did it mm-hmm. no longer exists and therefore all of these policies all of this um effort on the part of communities of color and other people of conscience to create fairness is actually that's what racism is right mm. that's mm-hmm. the the shift that's the that's the essence of the culture war to flip mm-hmm. and what any narrative around equity and justice on its head to make white people men and others in power appear as the victims mm-hmm. of 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 that of that conflict or that contradiction Mm-hmm. So all of the strategies that we see today, you know, the book banning, you know, mm-hmm. the attacks mm-hmm. on uh black history and edu- and, and curriculum, these mm-hmm. are extensions of a strategy that was in the 80s and the 90s around affirmative action, uh ending affirmative action, um uh and and removing ethnic studies and so on and so forth. I think it's important to say that this is a long-term strategy. This is right. an extension of 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 segregation. This is an extension of Plessy versus Ferguson. This is an extension of the battle that we've been in mm-hmm. around who mm-hmm. what the truth is, who gets to tell it, who gets to hear it, you know, um who gets to read, right? Who gets to learn how to read, yeah. who has access to an education, who has access to information. It's important to note that, right? This is a part of a long-term battle on the part mm-hmm. of the right wing in America and that the right wing in America is not a, a an extreme an extreme um uh uh an extremist element that is on the side of America it's at the heart of America and mm-hmm. that and that it's been um it's it's been a majority at at various points in American history so mm-hmm. this is important i think to understand because when we create movements or sectors or strategies uh that are in, intended to make media and journalism and technology more equitable if we don't if we don't enter from that understanding that mm-hmm. there is a um 
there is an ongoing, very explicit, very clear battle to right. um, to uh, turn the truth on its head, then right. we think disinformation is a strategy of an extremist sort of a, an extremist group. It's not. It's it's inherent to the way power has been structured in in the United States from mm-hmm. from its from its inception to today. Absolutely. You know, only a small set of people are intended to rule. Yeah. And and everyone else has to fight for basic access to cultural literacy, to yes. education, to uh, news and information, to technological access, so on and so forth. So so that's when I think about the right and I think about, you know, the right usurping the language of the left, you know, mm-hmm, or usurping mm-hmm. the language of civil rights, usurping yes. the concepts of, of racial justice, you know, and turning them on its head. Mm-hmm. This is all part of a of a very profound and long term cultural strategy to retain white power, and I think yeah. it's important that we understand that. Yeah, that's man. Thank you, thank you for that. That's yeah. real. Um, I'm thinking about all of this in the era of social media and how much social media has completely changed the way we think of media, right? And um. And actually, one of the moments that made me want to have this conversation with you now was, um, it's a couple weeks ago now, but um, Instagram uh, kicking off Sean King for for uplifting Palestine. And I know mm-hmm. Sean King, like people have a lot of mixed feelings about him. and But it doesn't I, matter I what wanna, we think about Sean King. It doesn't King. matter. It's not relevant. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to get into any Mm-mm. of that because that's, that's not the point. Like, what? It's not. What they did to him, they can and will do to all of us, right? And for people that don't know, um, Sean King had, I don't remember how many followers on Instagram. Was it 7 million? It was it was a big number. And he has been very consistent with uplifting uh, stories from Palestine and uplifting Palestinian voices. And, um, and they banned him and kicked him off the account. You know, kicked him off of Instagram completely, um, and I believe his last post, the one that they they banned him for, was um, was about Yemen, and this is before the U.S. started bombing Yemen. You know, Absolutely. this was like this was like a week before, um, and Yemen hadn't killed anyone. They they just simply stopped ships that were exactly. carrying equipment into Israel, which is com- currently committing a genocide, from passing through the water. And he commended them on it and Instagram took his account off, you know, and it's just such a, it's such a big moment. And I feel like because people feel however they feel about Sean King, they didn't look at the underlying implications of what that means for all of us on these, on these online platforms. And, you know, it reminded me of another online platform that's a relic from back in the day, which is MySpace. Mm. <laughs> like, 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 just personally, um, I, I was an early adopter to MySpace music, and I owe that website for a lot of my early successes and even having a career in music. Mm. Um, just because I was on it when I was, I wasn't a, I wasn't a person that would spam people, and I didn't I didn't yeah. even like use MySpace in the way that anyone uses social media now. But since I was on when I was on, like I had a really big following, and you know, over the course of a few years, like I can't remember if it was fifty to seventy thousand people 
that I had a connection with. Wow. And then and then one day MySpace went out and I never had that connection again, right? So yes. when we when we put our entire way of communicating with each other on these platforms that we don't control, it's like they can turn the lights off in a minute and there's no there's just no recourse so yeah i wanted to get your thoughts on that yeah just ask like where do we go from here how do we how do we move through this you know (laughs) i mean it's interesting because you know on there's so many things that you're bringing up let's take them piece by piece okay so number one you know part of how power works is it will attack what it perceives as a a weak link or uh, someone easy to discredit someone who Uh has a lot of, um, who's very effective, but also controversial, right? This is, this is, this is a, an old um, playbook, you know, this, mm-hmm. there's nothing innovative about this. But unfortunately, a lot of activists, um, they're activists, they're disconnected from any particular organization, they've been activated and mobilized via social media which on social media, anybody can be anybody. You can get famous on social media without having ever done anything. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like all you're doing is talking and, and that's great. But so so basically what, what I'm saying is that people look at Sean King for better or worse, whatever his controversy is, mm-hmm. they don't understand. They're activists, okay? They don't understand that it's not, he's not just an individual. He represents a network of resources, of infrastructure um, that is moving behind a particular set of issues. He mm-hmm. not, not only represents um, a platform with a lot of followers, but there's a lot of other stuff behind. He wasn't just uplifting stories. He sent resources to Palestine. Right. He did a lot. Right. right. He did a lot as it relates to Palestine. And so if you're a strategist and if you're a member of the movement, you're going to take that into consideration. You know, you're going to think mm-hmm. about that. Now, my, my, uh, my disappointment, my great and grave disappointment is that the media justice movement, the media reform mm-hmm. movement did not come out and say or do anything. You know, right. who, who met with Meta to say this is unacceptable? Who, mm-hmm. where, where were the protests and the calls for action from the sector that I helped to build that is responsible for dealing with moments just like this mm-hmm. I have I am extraordinarily disappointed mm-hmm. in many of the institutions that represent the media reform and justice sector in terms of how they have responded to this moment in this genocide in Palestine yes okay yes. very very upset I, I want to know who is taking on meta and their uh, wanton discrimination against pro-Palestinian accounts. They're wanting Mm -hmm. uh, censorship of pro-Palestinian messages. This Mm -hmm. is something that, you know, um, the way that they've been dealing with and messing with um, the accounts of the journalists in Palestine, the fact that so many Palestinian journalists have been murdered and yet only international organizations have been speaking out about this. Mm -hmm. This is a consequence of neoliberalism. This is a consequence of a movement, a media movement that is steeped in a certain kind and understanding of neoliberal democracy. It is a democracy that is not by the people, for the people, it's by the person 
for the person. You feel me? It's mm-hmm. individualized. And and um and so the the kinds of policies that this sector is is has tended to fight for are policies that assist individual um amplification. Um, you know, that that when we think about like we always talk about how the internet has decentralized communications. Well, it hasn't though. It's mm. decentralized voices while centralizing and consolidating power. It has not decentralized power, as we've discussed, mm-hmm. you know, as, mm-hmm. as we as we sometimes say it has. It's mm-hmm. actually centralized and consolidated corporate power. You know yeah. what I'm saying? While Absolutely. at the same time making it appear that voices have been decentralized. This is a this is a trick. This is a tricky, mm-hmm. this is a this is a, um, um, we have to understand um, this as it truly is and not as it appears. We have right. to understand that the telecommunications lobby is the second most powerful and um, second most powerful lobby in, the, in, the, in, in, in Congress that, um, you know, that uh, it's right up there with the oil lobby. Like we have to really understand that mm-hmm. what started out as a, um, uh, uh, a um, what started out as a movement of the people is now an incumbent movement. You feel me? Is now um, a, a I think in large measure a movement that is very much guided by the politics and the policies of the ruling class. So right. that's why you know one. Uh, many of the the organizations that I used to consider allies mm, have mm-hmm. not come out in any way and said or done almost anything. They right. might point to a text, excuse me, a, a tweet here or there, you know, a, a post here or there. But mm-hmm. in terms of an organized effort, have done very little. That's why mm-hmm. I'm proud of Media Justice because Media Justice went to D.C. to mm-hmm. actively en- engage in um, in protest and engage in civil disobedience. But uh, very few organizations in our cipher have done that. So that's yeah. one piece, right? Mm-hmm. We need to, we, you know, the need for a direct confrontation of these um, uh, social platforms uh, in this time is real, it's mm-hmm. profound, it's, de- it's urgent, and it's yeah. not happening. It's not right. happening. So that's one thing. The other piece that I want to address is, you know, this question of, um, you know, uh, and and so because there's not, this is a litmus test, right, of the left. It mm-hmm. does the left have the power to constrain uh, the 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 influence of of corporate media and right wing politics, right? Mm-hmm. What we've seen is it does not at this time. Right. Right. The left does not have the power and the strength to constrain the power of the right and, and of corporate corporate media. So mm-hmm. that's something that we need to learn from. You know, there mm-hmm. are some things mm-hmm. we need to build. There's some some areas of our uh, of our of our work that need to strengthen. Yeah. Specifically, during the time that we were building the sector, we really um, spent a lot of time reaching out to and engaging with you know, the criminal justice um, sector, the folks mm-hmm. who was working on housing and homeless, homelessness, folks mm-hmm. who were working on uh, domestic violence, folks who were working on the land back movement. Yeah. Some of that has been lost in this time. 
you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in terms of the media reform and justice sector, they're, they're not they're not connecting in, you know, in the ways that that we used to with um, mm-hmm. with um, these other other uh, elements, uh, other other places where, where justice and injustice are, are, are intersecting. This is a problem. Yeah. This is a problem. The sector, the media justice and reform sector is not playing its position mm-hmm. and it needs to. And mm-hmm. part of that is because of the of the need to strengthen the left, but the other part is because the power the the censorship yes. that has emerged is profound. The fear of being attacked, of being canceled, of being fired. <laughs> yeah, of being fired yeah. is real. You know, we've yeah. seen the, we saw in the news, the agent of Ava DuVernay, who's also, by the way, the agent of Tom Cruise, be right. fired from her position, demoted from her role wow. as a result of a retweet. Wow. A retweet related to Palestine, pro-Palestine right. pro, pro retweet. We've right. seen it again and again and again. We've seen journalists fired and constrained, demoted. You know, we've mm-hmm. seen this, act, act, actors and actresses, um, mm-hmm. all kinds of people. Now, as the mm-hmm. war has, as the as the siege has gone on, um, yeah. it's become more and more acceptable to oppose it. So I, I guess what I'm saying here is that the, um, the power of the right, the rise of authoritarianism, the rise of fascism, it's showing itself. And sure this power imbalance is something that we have to take very seriously. We have to correct. And we also cannot rely on our old allies to do it. Yeah, that's real. That's real. I think I still have questions about... Okay, this is, here's a simple one. Come on. Like def- defining corporate media. Do we include Facebook, Meta, all of that in corporate media? I would absolutely. I mean, yeah. what media is in this day and age is uh, maybe seems a bit amorphous, but let's just right. call it media and tech. You know, let's say that is yeah. one one arena, and mm-hmm. there's a challenge, right? These plat these platforms don't want to be included. They don't want to be guided by the laws of that guide journalism. They don't want to be constrained right. by those laws by the First Amendment, but mm-hmm. they want the benefits of being platform, you know, publishing platform. So right. they want the 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 uh, the financial benefits of being a publishing platform, but they don't want the um, political constraints or constitutional constraints of being a journalistic outlet. Mm-hmm. Right? They want the best of both worlds. They want to do and say whatever they want, and they want to get as much money as possible. Yeah. But they are still media outlets. They are still mm-hmm. outlets, you know, and mm-hmm. and so yes, social platforms. I like to say media and social platforms. That's how I, you know, or news and social platforms. They're all media, you yeah. know, news and social media. They're all media, yeah. you know, they're, they're not different. They, they used to seem different, but they're not different. Right. They're exactly the same. The New York times has, is on the web. Of course. <laughs> yeah. The web is infrastructure, you know, but the platform itself, it is the New York times. It's no longer something separate as it once may have seen. It is mm-hmm. the New York Times. Meta isn't just the, it's a company. It has right. many aspects of that company and it lives on this platform. So the platform is Meta. You know what I'm saying? Right. That distinction between platform and company doesn't exist anymore. Right, right. So 
the thing I keep running up against in my mind is, is where do we go from here? Because I think a lot of us haven't made that distinction between um, the social media platform being an extension of like corporate media because we feed it our content. Like we feed it our stories day in and day out. So we feel like an ownership over our account and our content, but it's really this corporation that is censoring, is quietly censoring, or is out loud, just outright, like taking people's accounts away. What I keep coming up against is where where do we go from here as storytellers, as as people in, involved in the media, in this era where like everything is is going to social media, everything is going to online. And we even have uh, like newspapers shuttering, you know, around the country. Like, you know, we talk about New York Times and Washington Post a lot, but I mean, Seattle used to have two newspapers and two weekly arts alternatives, and now we're down to one. And we used to have different magazines that had free distribution, and now those are all gone. Like, you know, like print journalism is going out. And yeah, I just I just keep coming up against like, you know, the, the same kind of thoughts. Like, what does it look like when we control the platform, but how do we get how do we get the alternative to look as cool and be as enticing and as popular as the as the mainstream ones like yeah i just yeah i just have questions about about where do we go like if we you know if we all go the way of Sean King and we get censored and kicked off like yeah i i don't know i'm i'm, I'm at a loss so i'm i'm seeking guidance and 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 just and just wondering what your thoughts are if you're also feeling the same way you know <laughs> i mean I think that a lot of people are asking that question. You know, how do we fight for a future where we're all connected, represented, and free? You know? Yes. Um, you know, obviously, to achieve that, we're going to need a media and technology environment that fuels real justice, right? That, 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 um, that fuels that freedom from oppression and that freedom to communicate. Inside of a neoliberal democracy, that's hard to get. And especially right. inside of growing fascism, we're going to find ourselves uh, uh, faced with new challenges, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so we're going to have to do a real analysis of power, first of all, and really mm -hmm. understand where media and technology power is today. You know, um, uh, you know, we, the shift from uh, um, print and broadcast, you know, moving into telecom and cable, right? Moving into you know, tech and social, you know, there, there is, there, there have been some significant shifts both in the, in the, in, in the um, capacities, right, of the, of the technologies itself. And mm -hmm. also what that means about how we relate to those technologies legally, um, ethically, you feel me? Mm -hmm. um, so first off, I think we need to, um, we need to better understand the true relationship that we have to media and technology. We need to understand, for example, that most places in the United States no longer have a local news outlet. Right. You know, um, uh, we need to understand that that's not some random issue that doesn't affect us. It has an extraordinary impact on local politics. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, nobody's at the, at the, um, nobody's at the city hall meeting. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Nobody's at the city council meeting to cover that there is an Im impact on elections on engagement at the local level to people in in, in in politics so that's one thing we need to better understand mm -hmm. we need to fight for local journalism you know right. we need to find new ways to fund 
local media, local journalism. See, this is part of the mm -hmm. issue because we put journalism and this is a, a too controversial way to say it, but I'll just say on on an auction block, right? Out on the stock mm -hmm. market, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, it it means that, it, it meant that it was very easy to decimate, number one. And and number two, that there's no, there's no national obligation around um, ensuring uh, ensuring that that journalism exists. Now, there's all kinds of ways people have been thinking about how to fund journalism. You know, obviously, many countries all around the world have uh, national media, right? Even the BBC is is a is is a national you know outlet. Now, there's issues with that, right? You don't want the government. Um, uh, being a, one complete funder or even the majority funder for a news outlet because then government positions may get overrepresented. That said, taxes, <laughs> you know, in, in England, for example, taxes are actually used to help pay for the BBC. Now, that's something mm -hmm. in America nobody would ever consider using taxes to pay for journalism because it's not considered an essential need, but it is an essential right. need. So finding new right. ways to pay that does not rely upon corporate money, that does not make right. us wholly reliant upon the power and resources of private corporations, this is a big direction that we need to go in. We need to find new ways mm -hmm. to, to resource our journalism. Number two, mm. you know, or number three, I should say, you know, um, there are a lot of laws that are not caught up with the technological environment. You know, the First Amendment was written in, you know, however many centuries ago, right? The yeah, First Amendment yeah. was written in an environment that could not even conceive of the kind of many-to-many -many relationship that technology allows right now. The speed, mm -hmm. right, of information sharing, it could never have even imagined it. So we need an update. <laughs> we right, need a constitutional right. update that is mm. that has amendments that uh, uh, that that um, align with this this historical period. You know, so mm -hmm, this is another mm -hmm. thing, right? We need um, algorithmic justice, right? We need laws <laughs> that hold um, the AI world and work accountable. Um, you yeah. know, we, there's so much, right, that we need yeah. that is legal. But the biggest mm -hmm. legal advance, I think, that would take us where you're talking about, right, that would allow us to go is that we need some antitrust work. See, these companies, mm -hmm. that, you know, there's a saying, if the product is free, then the product is you, you know? So... Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you mm -hmm. want social media, you ain't paid nothing and you, you know, da, 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 it's free because the, you, the, you know, Facebook, they, the story, even the, um, even the movie about Facebook was like, oh, it's mm. this uh, college student. He started it as a book of faces to get in touch with other college students, you know, mm -hmm. to make friends, but it had nothing to do with friends or relationships. It had right. to do with data. Right. You know, these are mm -hmm. data mining companies. They're not social media companies. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we have to mm -hmm. understand them as data mining companies. This is an era of big data. Data is big. Big data is big profit. And so yeah. antitrust is really the only, I think, set of, set of uh, legal remedies that can break these big companies apart 
and create you, the, at least the environment. Down, yeah. Can you break down what antitrust means? I mean, I'm not an attorney, you know, we're going to have to get an attorney yeah. in here to do that okay, successfully. Okay. But yeah. what I can say yeah. is, is that, is that, um, antitrust legislation and legal, um, and, and laws are, um, they're laws that prevent that, that are meant to stop activity that unreasonably restrains trade. Okay, that's the basic idea, okay. right? So okay. antitrust yeah. is like they, it's considered anti anti trade or, or laws that prevent things that 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 uh, unreasonably restrain trade. This is why antitrust even is limited, right? Because it's all about mm-hmm. um, saying, you know what, consolidation unreasonably restrains trade. It makes it so innovation is impossible, right? This is right, all right. under capitalism because it's going to lead me to my last remedy which is a more extensive yes. remedy but under underneath nice. capitalism and neoliberalism these are the legal remedies we have right you you say okay. no this is going to uh, make it so that actually um innovation is impossible and so we need these these incumbent companies to be smaller right but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then there's the whole question of corporate personhood and the laws that allow for corporate personhood right Right, Those laws right. need to be overturned. And then mm-hmm. there's the question of the economic base at all. Capitalism as an economic base will allow for this relationship between us as human beings and technology to continue exactly as it has. What we're seeing is the inevitable mm-hmm. result of late stage capitalism, right? It That's will right. always be, it will just keep getting worse. It will get more yeah. chaotic. We will see more disinformation, right? That we will see uh, less official news and more uh, information that's just shared in bubbles and silos, right? Because right, that's right. what late stage capitalism breeds. That's its inevitable uh, cultural environment. It's it's that's its byproduct. So in order mm-hmm. to prevent that, or in order to transform that, you're going to have to have a more significant conflict for a, a, a shifting of power. It's not mm-hmm. going to be enough to pass new laws, to re, rethink right. the Constitution, you know, or do any of that. You feel me? It's going to require yeah. something nobody wants to see, but yeah. it's a direction that we're heading in anyway. There are going to be yeah. more and more conflicts between the powerless and the powerful. And the only the only prayer that I have is that the end result of those conflicts is a new economic base that supports justice for everybody. Yeah, I share that with you. You know, I share that same thought with you. Um, you mentioned you mentioned your days as a poet earlier, mm. and I wanted I wanted to bring it back to that. I don't know if I ever told you, but I was at a bookstore one time, and I found a uh, an anthology. Of New Yorkian poets, and I uh-huh. found you in there. Allowed, like, oh, yeah, the yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to ask you how important is art in in all of your work that you do these days. Um, art is everything to me. You know, it, it it's mm-hmm. what has allowed me to navigate 
uh, the grief of losing my mother, the grief of losing my wife, the grief of losing a friend after friend, uh, colleague, comrade, cousin, aunties. Um, you know, we just talked about late stage capitalism. One of the truths is that mass loss is a feature, you know, of late stage capitalism. If we don't have mm. poetry, if we don't have songs, mm-hmm. if we don't have dance, if we don't have, you know, vi- visual art, if we don't have, you know, all of these things, this is this is how we translate the most unimaginable emotions into something someone can imagine, you know? Into this mm-hmm. is art is how we generate empathy. Um, mm-hmm. It's how we uh, it's how we co envision a different future. You know what I'm saying? It's it's not entertainment. You know what I mean? Right. It might be entertaining, right. but it's not entertainment. It is um, it is the it's grief. Art is the manifestation mm-hmm. of grief, and. Mm-hmm. People think that grief means sorrow, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Grief is any response to loss. That means mm-hmm. it's joy, it's, it's loneliness, it's anger, it's uh, mm-hmm. sadness. It's every, every emotion that, and not just emotions, but every action, every thought, everything we do that is in response to loss. And let me say that everything we do is in response to loss. Loss mm. is what is what guides our every evolutionary step, you know? Loss of ability, Mm -hmm. loss of water, loss of life. Uh, Every uh, loss is how we evolve. And so, uh, and art is the the vehicle, is the medium for that evolution. So Mm. that's how I think about art. And so I'm always, I write, I write a lot of poems. I, I've gone through long periods where writing has been harder for me. Um, I'm working on a book right now, and that's been yes. really hard, you know? Mm-hmm. It's hard because uh, you have to sit with the truth, and then you have to tell the mm-hmm. truth. Um, right. And sometimes the truth is hard to tell. Some truths are very hard to tell. So that's the truth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. So I've been, I've yeah. been struggling with, with art. But I know in my soul how essential it is. And I told you that art was with me in the womb. Art was with me yeah. before I could walk. It, it walked with me. It ran with me. And I'm still uh, working with it today, you know? Yeah, I love it. That's so beautiful. I was going to ask, too, like, what, what what's keeping you busy these days? Is the, is the book the main thing? I mean, yeah, that's a big, big thing that I'm working on. I also nice. just wrapped up a fascism one-on-one educational series um, mm. attended by, you know, thousands of people. It was beautiful, mm. wildly successful. Did that with the Highlander Center, with the Right to the City oh. um, um, uh, folk, with the um, with uh, Lin- Linda Burnham, a, a veteran organizer, Ejeris Dixon. Uh, yes. You know, yes, we love Ejeris. And so... We we did some beautiful work together. Working now on a on an anti-fascist uh, futures gathering um, that that will come up in, in the next several months. Um, you know, writing for different um, uh, magazines and such, short 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 form. Mm-hmm. You know, writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, working doing a lot of public speaking. Working on um, just working on a bunch of different stuff. Working to build some 
organizer power building strategy centers across California um, with 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 organizers uh, with organizers in this state. Um, you know, so I'm just out here doing grief work, doing a lot of yeah, um, yeah grief uh, grief ceremony, grief um, uh, grief writing, doing um, doing a bunch of uh, theory development around grief and social change. Um, mm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just out here really getting in where I fit in, wherever I can lend. Uh, you know, I do I do a lot of stuff that I'm not that's not work. You know, I run something yeah. called Pandemic Joy. So every yeah, Sunday I gather. Yeah, it's a beautiful space. We gather online. We uh, we sing. We meditate. We hear mm-hmm. from people in our community um, who have something to teach us come and testify um mm-hmm. it feels like church without the yeah trauma. exactly that's right <laughs> church without the trauma i love it yeah we ain't we ain't it's non-religious yeah. it's fully yeah. secular spiritual you know in yeah. a way but it's yeah. it's fully secular and it's really about inspiration it's an inspiration community mm-hmm. you know just yeah. trying to survive yeah. all the stuff that we are facing these days I do a freedom cleanse every month with with a bunch of folks, about 50 people. And that's where we choose a few things that we're going to remove from our lives and some things we're going to add to our lives. I'm in Mm. it right now working on my nutrition, you know, working on organizing my life around writing. So that's the freedom cleanse. And just, you know, basically every day I wake up and ask myself, what, how can I get free? You know, what, what do mm-hmm. I need to do to to inspire and engage with my freedom today? And then I try yeah. to see what answers me. Sometimes it's uh. a new project. Sometimes, you know, I need to talk to somebody on the phone. You know, this yeah. is what's answering today. This podcast right now is what I'm doing today. Hey. You know what Thank I mean? You. So, yeah, <laughs> it's just as long as we can ask ourselves that question every day and then turn and face whatever the answer is, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm trying to I do. I love it. Yeah. That's so powerful. You you wake up every day and say, what can I do today to get free? Yeah. I love it. And it's that. hard. Sometimes that. you just got to look yourself in the mirror and realize that, oh, there's some things uh-huh. I need to change. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, if I'm going to be out here practicing that prefigurative politic, am I going, uh-huh. am I ready for the future that yeah. I'm working for? You know, would yeah. I be would I survive that future? Would I be, what kind of person do I need to be to share my yeah. last bit of water, to be the kind of person who, you know, can travel mm-hmm. on foot to, you know, mm-hmm. all the things that you think, what, who do I need to be? Like, let me say this, yeah. you know, we've seen disasters around the world, but particularly in this country and, you know, whether it's a, a, a hurricane or earthquake or whatever it is you know and mm-hmm. in in that moment of chaos you know who be swooping in with gas and water the right wing malicious see yeah. i want us to i want the left and not just the left but just people of conscience and people who care about justice and equality i want us to be able to sweep in you know swoop in with water yeah with gas who do you need to be? If you live somewhere, yeah. do you know the disaster plans for your neighborhood? You know, do mm-hmm. you have a a garden that could be shared? Is your life the kind of life 
that in the moment of need can provide for yourself and the people around you. Are you an organizer every day? Right. Who do you need to be? That's this question. Freedom. People be like, oh, freedom, freedom, freedom. Like somehow that's just some esoteric, abstract future, something or other. I need to just Mm -hmm. be in self-care. I need to go to the hot tub. You know, that's how I get get (laughs) free. You know what I mean? Need to get a massage. Hey, I am not against that. Get you the hot tub, get you the massage. But at the end of the day, you know, freedom actually means are we able to take responsibility for each other? Do we have right. the knowledge, the infrastructure, right. the, the capacity? So that's what I'm trying. I went to the range. I'm trying to learn how to shoot guns. I'm trying mm. to learn gardening. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to learn home improvement, things that I never yeah. knew before so that I yeah. can actually be a part of a free society one day. Yeah, that's real. I think I think we need to shift like collectively the way we think of self-care and 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 no see doubt. community care as a part of self-care. You know what I mean? Like cuz it's Absolutely. a self a self is not an individual. Like you you know, that's right. self is a part of a bigger collective no matter what. So how we're part of an organism. Have, that's right. Yeah, if the, if 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 the individual can't be healthy when the entire organism is 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 sick, so how facts. do we, you know? How do that's we, facts. Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah. And the fact of the matter about- is, if I'm if I'm satisfied and I'm happy and I'm in my in my in my bag and I got my whatever I need, but everyone around mm-hmm. me is failing, is sick, is poor, doesn't have their yeah. essential needs yeah. met. The, the fact is, that's how the ruling class thrives. And, you know, mm-hmm. look, Fred Hampton told us, look, you got to remember, you got to remind yourself, I am the people, I'm not the pig. And so right. that's the same right. thing. We wake up every day, you got to remind yourself, this is not about just mm-hmm. only me. That's that's the ruling mm-hmm. class. That's the, the pig is, the, is the, the inner cop, the security force, right? That's out yeah, here. Yeah. If you're just trying to protect yourself, and that's all you're doing, which is what self care is, you know, yeah, it's a it's a yeah. protective defensive mechanism. Then you're not mm-hmm. actually transforming. You know, you're not yeah. changing, and you're not creating the conditions for freedom. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. They everybody would like to talk about healing. We gotta heal. Mm-hmm. We gotta heal. We gotta heal. I'm like, yeah, but I want to be free. Like I want exactly my healing is is my is my walk to freedom. You know, everything else is mm-hmm. the, the therapeutic model for healing, which is very mm-hmm. individualistic. That's not what I want for myself. That's right. You know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the to create the conditions where we all can heal is the thing. That's right. right. Like we got mm-hmm. we got to change the entire entire structure you know i love that book um the body keeps the score yes me too but i feel like a lot of people don't get to the epilogue where Mm. you know like Mm -hmm. i feel feel like the epilogue is like one of the most important chapters because he very specifically names that the entire society needs to change for us to heal from trauma that's right you know that's right yeah if you've read that if you've read that book but haven't read the epilogue go to the epilogue go to the epilogue read that first (laughs) Read yeah. that first, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. And, then re- and then read the rest. 
I could talk to you all day, but um, <laughs> I want to I want to respect your time. Thank At some you. point, I would love I would love to have a more extended conversation with you about um, particularly about like being being your mother's child because mm. so because so often like because my dad's an activist too, and I mm. feel like a lot of times like as children of movement workers, like there's a there's a um, what's the word for it a sense of resentment that can build when you feel like you had a parent that cared more about the movement than they cared about you, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I mean, for me, that was like an outright rejection of Marxism when I was younger because that right. was my dad's jam. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't, and I, I didn't even like, I didn't even want to look into it because that was his thing, you know? Yep. And then I realized like, Oh no, he was actually onto something. though. <laughs> and I'd love to have a longer yeah. conversation with you one day about what that, what that meant for you. But I feel like that's going to be a whole nother hour. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm here for that conversation. You know, I, I definitely relate to what you're saying. It was different for yeah. me. I will say, you know, like it's, it sounds like it was, yeah. it was different for me in part because I was gay. You know, okay, because uh-huh. I was gay and I came out when I was 12, I uh-huh. began my own activism around my nice. own identity, you know, and yeah. I it was a time when very few people were out. Like I was the only out person in my junior high school, the only out person in my mm-hmm. high school. I had to fight mm-hmm. a lot. I was attacked a lot physically Um And so organizing with people, coming together with other queer folk, um, young people, became a a survival mechanism. It was also the only Mm. way for me to gain any kind of um, puberty and, you know, uh, adolescence and way to, you know, kind of have my coming of age. Right. Um, Mm. And so organizing for my for my safety um, and therefore also for my rights became part of my social network. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Not to mm-hmm. mention that everybody I knew, every person that I knew, my mother's friends, I didn't know we weren't related, you know, until I was an yeah. adult. All of their yeah. children, everybody was in the movement. So there wasn't even mm-hmm. a how do you not be in the movement? Who where would you where would I go to not be in the movement? I didn't know nobody that that right. You know? Um, and then the last thing that I'll say about this that I think is really interesting, too, is that, um, you know, my sister had other friends who were not in the movement. You know what I mean? Okay. So she had yeah. a little bit more of that that journey toward, like, having to, to come to terms with and decide for herself that this was uh, the movement was a place she wanted to be and build, you know, so she but I really never because I was gay, you know, mm-hmm. I never mm-hmm. had a period of being outside, but I'm going to tell you one story to, to wrap mm-hmm. up that I thought was very, very indicative of, of me and, and my, being my mother's child. Mm-hmm. So when I wrote my, I, I did my first chat book and it was nice. published by kitchen table press and I was about 15 and I had wow, my mom so had young. Wow. yes, and I had taken I had went my mom had taken me or maybe I was fourteen my mom had taken me to the black mm. to the Medgar Evers Black Writers Conference you know Medgar Evers College okay. Barbara Smith yeah. was speaking there and she had you know they, it was Q and A she dragged me to the front she said tell him you're a lesbian and I was like no. <laughs> 
I thought it's such a it's such a parent it's such a parent thing to do. Like, <laughs> and she was like, "The mic is right there, so everybody can hear." Her. She's like, "Tell them you're a lesbian and you want to be a writer too." And I was like, "Well, you already uh, told them; they heard you, you know." So anyway, right, I said right. it. You know, I'm a lesbian and I want to be a writer too. And afterwards, uh-huh. they everybody laughed because it was funny to them. And I, that's <laughs> yeah. how I met Barbara Smith. I, nice. I um I was then uh, introduced to Audrey Lord. I began Amazing. to, you know, have a have a bit of a mentorship relationship, um, oh in which, yeah, she, you know, she um, wow. put me through this Brooklyn Academy of Music um, residency. Me and my friend Nicole Breedlove, um, and then uh, and then we 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 performed at her I Am Your Sister conference in Boston, wow. and then I performed wow. at her funeral at St. John the Divine. Wow, and so. This is, you know, so all of this is happening, right? So somewhere in the midst of this, when Audrey was still alive and Kitchen Table Press had published my my chat book and we got a bunch of copies of it. And my Mm. mom sent me to Restoration Plaza in Brooklyn to sell Mm. the chat books for $1 a piece. And I Mm. sold about a thousand chat books over a couple of days and I I had a thousand dollars. Never had that much money in my life. Never even mm-hmm. seen that much money in my life, all in like dollar bills, mm-hmm. right? Some right, people right. paid five dollars for the chat book, you know, which was like crazy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, Mommy, I want to get some sneakers, you know, I want to get a jacket, you know what I mean? Like, I wasn't allowed to wear yeah. any name brand clothes. She, I said, oh, Well, this I is my money, too. you know, yeah, yeah you uh-huh. know, it's my money, so I could go get whatever I want, you know. She said, Oh, mm-hmm. that's not your money. <laughs> I see what you're talking about. I, I went out and I sold the books. I wrote the book, you know? Right, and she said, oh, right. you're confused. You're confused. You know, you were given a gift. And the point of a gift is to give it. You have a gift. So now you have to give it. So what, um, mm. where do you want to donate your money to, you know? <laughs> wow. I had to donate all of the money to a women and children's wow. shelter in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I was very upset, very angry, <laughs> very yeah. angry. But this is just yeah. gives you an example of the yeah. the way life was as a as a child and as a teen, you know. Yeah. And everything yeah. was a lesson. Everything we and my mom was involved in it. She came out with me to sell them books. Like she was involved yeah. in all of it. So it wasn't like a lot of my friends mm-hmm. who was in the movement, whose parents right. went off and did the movement. And they felt neglected or they felt forced or they felt all of that. Mm-hmm. That wasn't that wasn't my yeah. my experience. You know what I mean? Nice. Yeah, and it was beautiful. the experience of most of the people I knew, most of the other right? movement, um, kids I know. Yeah. Yeah, I hear the other story way more often than I hear yes. yours, you know. Yes. Yeah. Me too. You had a- <laughs> Me too. Since you since since you mentioned it, I I had no idea that you you and Audrey Lord had like that kind of like relationship. You got a yeah. you got a favorite uh Audrey Audrey story. Oh, I I, I mean, she's just she's like one of my heroes of all time. Like I I love her so much. Like you know, her but what I love most about Lord. Audrey Lord is that she is real regular. Like she's not regular. Wow. She's a genius and she's mm-hmm. all of the things, but also. She was kind of mean too. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, 
not me, stern, you know, stern. Okay. Uh, and yeah, she wasn't, she wasn't like, she, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. I love, okay. I love, I love her. And um, it's not like we spent a whole lot of time together. I'm blessed that she I took see. some type of interest in me. Um, mm. And every time we were together, she was ad- advising me, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> but, um, but the fact that she did take an interest, she did um, make a way, you know, uh, for me to yeah. be the poet that I am today, you know, and the writer yeah. that I am today. And I will never, ever forget that. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Um, is there, uh, is there, is there anything you want to leave with the people? Is there ways that can connect with you and your work? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm out here on IG. You know, I'm the Culture Jedi okay. everywhere I go on, on yeah, fake X. It. You know, on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always the Culture Jedi. You know, and um, I, I just would love, I love to connect with people on around. Um, around their grief work, you know, I love to mm. connect people around and any work for uh, black liberation, for international uh, solidarity, uh, I'm here for it, you know? So yeah, hit, yeah. hit me up on any of those, uh, on any of those social platforms and, uh, and let's, let's link. That's what I, I love to I, talk. I love the chat. I'm here I to make the chit chat as my wife used to say. <laughs> <laughs> You're here to make the chit chat. I'm here to make Thank the chit chat. Thank you for chit-chatting here on this podcast and Worldwide Underground. Appreciate you so much. Love you so much. Um, Love you. Yeah, and we will we will talk again soon. Thank you once again to Malkia Devich Cyril for being so generous with their time, their stories, their insights. I got a lot from that conversation, and I hope you did too. If you like this podcast, be sure to tell people about it. Share it on all the socials. And make sure you're subscribed to GabrielTiodros.substack.com. This is completely people-powered, y'all. And I want to keep it going. I'm giving it a year. And we're going to see. We're going to see if this is sustainable after one year. You know what I mean? We're, what, two, maybe three months in right now? All right. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. I made this beat too. Shout out to me on production. New album coming in 2024, y'all. You heard it here first. And it's a monster. From the Ashes of Our Homes out right now. My old album is still a new album too. (laughs) All right, I'm going to be back with you soon. Appreciate y'all so much. It's GT signing out. Much love. Peace.